Greetings, readers of The New Criterion. This is Roger Kimball. I'm the editor of The New Criterion, and I'm speaking to you from the world headquarters in New York. And I'm going to be telling you about our new issue, our December 2018 issue, which is our special art issue. I think this is the 10th, maybe the 11th or 12th special art issue we've run in December. And this installment, like all of the others, is full of terrific things. You won't want to miss Marco Grassi and Edward Chancellor on selling pictures. You won't want to miss Dominic Green's brilliant piece on Montaigne and Bellini, or an artist I suspect you have never heard of, but one that you will want to know, Edwin Dickinson, who, as I speak, has a retrospective at the Philadelphia Art Museum. There's a brilliant piece by our assistant editor, Andrew Shea, on that artist, and many other terrific things. This issue in December leads off with a splendid long essay by the great Conrad Black about the great Andrew Roberts' terrific biography of Winston Churchill. I'm sure you've seen that noted everywhere. It's a brilliant book, Churchill Walking with Destiny, and this mentioning this gives me the occasion to tell you that it's time to mark your calendars. April 4th, The New Criterion will be hosting its annual Edmund Burke Award Dinner for Service to Culture and Society, and our honoree will be none other than Andrew Roberts. So mark your calendars, look at our website, and please join us on April 4th. It's my pleasure also to read you uh, my notes and comments from the December issue. The first installment is called Offense Archaeology, a new term to me but one that I hope will enter the language. It sometimes happens that a new discipline begins to be practiced before it's officially named. This has occurred recently with the widespread attacks on campuses, on the streets, and even in legislative bodies against individuals who have been determined to express or even to entertain heterodox opinions. The process is remarkable for its swiftness, its ferocity, and its icy disregard for protocol, customary procedure, and such quaint scruples as due process or evidentiary rigor. Over the years, we have regularly had occasion to mention and lament this modern version of witch-hunting, in the unfolding of which reputations and careers are destroyed for wearing the wrong sort of shirt, making offhand comments that irk the self-appointed guardians of some designated victim group, or writing something that contravenes the spoken and unspoken consensus of opinion about some newly sensitive issue. We are happy to report that this practice, active informally for years, has at last local habitation and a name, offense archaeology. As far as we know, there are no classes, professorships, or academic majors devoted to the discipline, but such institutional recognition is surely only a matter of time. And besides, who needs academic certification when boots on the ground already make the practice vivid, intimidating, and newsworthy? The term offense archaeology seems to have entered circulation earlier this year when the British journalist and education industry gadfly Toby Young was appointed to a UK university watchdog group. Mr. Young had been a nimble and Tabasco presence on Twitter, 
where his politically incorrect observations won him a wide and amused following, but also the consternation of the constitutionally offended. When his government appointment was announced, his articles and Twitter feed were scrutinized for impermissible remarks and attitudes, and he was pilloried and then sacked. This latest example of offense archaeology involves a figure much higher up the intellectual food chain, the English philosopher, novelist, and public intellectual Sir Roger Scruton. Last month, Sir Roger was appointed to advise the Ministry of Housing, Communities, and Local Government as the unpaid chairman of a new public body to champion beautiful building. As the British journalist James Dellingpole reported, the, quote, leftist whinge brigade instantly wheeled into action, employing the same hysterical tactics it used with such success against Toby Young. Even as we write, Sir Roger's voluminous writings and public presentations are being excavated. Politically incorrect phrases are unearthed, torn from their original context, and passed like antique shards in front of the tremulous outrage meter of the left. As of this writing, it is not clear whether the campaign against Sir Roger will succeed. The usual non-entities in Parliament and the press have eagerly joined the attack against him. The Shadow Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, Andrew Gwynne, sniffed, quote, Nobody holding the views that Scruton holds has a place in modern democracy. The Prime Minister needs finally to show some leadership and sack Scruton with an investigation into how he was appointed in the first place. Another MP said, quote, With every passing hour, it becomes clear that Roger Scruton has a history of making offensive comments. It beggars belief that he passed a vetting process. It must be said that Roger Scruton's work offers a target-rich environment for the bullies. On subjects ranging from fox hunting and sexuality to the nature of Islam and what counts as good art, his work is a compendium of against-the-grain attitudes and arguments. A generation ago, these would have been regarded as traditional Tory opinions. But today, what is more verboten than that? Sir Roger, it should also be said, happens to be one of the most brilliant, articulate, and wide-ranging intellectual figures in the Anglosphere, a man of incandescent intelligence, aesthetic sensitivity, and political courage. It is worth pausing to underscore the courage. In the 1980s, he worked tirelessly and at great personal peril behind the Iron Curtain to help those fighting against the totalitarian jackboot of communist tyranny. All this makes his attackers appear faintly ridiculous to everyone but themselves, but not, alas, any less virulent. To date, Sir Roger has responded to the preposterous assault against him in two table-turning ways. First, he issued a statement declaring, I have been offended and hurt by suggestions that I am anti-Semitic or in any way Islamophobic. If the issue is feeling offended, then two can play at that game. And we'd like to add, for the record, that we too are deeply offended by such moronic partisan attacks against a distinguished public-spirited individual. What sort of redress are we entitled to? What high horse may we mount? Sir Roger's second response is more amusing and potentially fruitful. Instead of apologizing for his past statements, he has embraced them. 
Moreover, he and his assistants are in the process of making a compendium of potentially offensive things that he has said or written, so that his would-be inquisitors may understand and exploit the full spectrum of his obloquy. Quote, Roger has decided, one reads on his personal website, to collect as many of his outrageous remarks as he can discover, so as to include them in a folder to appear on this site. His opinions on many topics diverge shockingly from those of the Guardian, and it would be very helpful to his critics to be provided with the necessary evidence, together with snippets of the more easily digestible arguments, since these too will be proof of crime. Topics such as hunting, marriage, pop music, Israel, sex, gender, identity, and the nation have provided Roger with many opportunities for criminal thinking that we are sure will be able to provide our readers with a bulging folder of charges. This will save Roger's critics a lot of unnecessary trouble and serve to brighten their lives with a sense of their own righteousness. We suspect that this proleptic gambit will be effective in embarrassing his tormentors, though whether it will also disarm them is as yet uncertain. The practice of offense archaeology dramatizes a number of troubling questions about the status of free speech, open debate, and indeed the nature of our common life together in a polity that once gloried in championing its commitment to tolerance and rational disputation. Sir Roger is fond of quoting a famous passage from the second chapter of John Stuart Mill's 1859 Manifesto on Liberty. Quote, the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion, Mill wrote, is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth, produced by its collision with error. As Sir Roger has noted, Mill's argument is not the last word about the dynamics of free speech, but it is assuredly a vital first word. It used to be that in civilized discourse, one would avoid giving offense where one could. The politically correct imperative today, on the contrary, enjoins one always to take offense if one can. There are now, Scruton wrote in The Art of Taking Offense, an article for The Spectator last August, experts in the art of taking offense. Indeed, whole academic subjects, such as gender studies, devoted to it. You may not know in advance what offense consists in politely opening a door for a member of the opposite sex, thinking of her sex as opposite, thinking in terms of sex rather than gender, using the wrong pronoun. Who knows? We have encountered a new kind of predatory censorship, a desire to take offense that patrols the world for opportunities without knowing in advance what will best supply its venom. As with the Puritans in the 17th century, the need to humiliate and to punish precedes any concrete sense of why. Scruton goes on to recall the case of the Conservative Party politician Boris Johnson, who sparked outrage last summer when, in the process of defending a woman's right to wear a burqa, he observed that a woman wearing one resembles a letterbox. The problem for those crying foul, Scruton observed, is that a burqa-clad person does resemble a letterbox. 
just as, quote, a man in white tie resembles a penguin, or a woman in feathers resembles a chicken. Reality counts for something. There are two takeaways from the Burka and Boris episode. One involves the panicked pusillanimity of the official class. Factota from the Prime Minister on down instantly jettisoned Johnson and ran for cover, trembling in the corner lest the outraged brigade accuse them of similar torts against the gods of political correctness. The second takeaway brings us to a fundamental question about the nature of our society. We live, Scruton wrote, in a face-to-face society in which strangers look each other in the eye, address each other directly, and take responsibility for what they say. This custom is not just a fashion. It is deeply implanted in us by a thousand-year-old religious and legal tradition, by the Enlightenment conception of what citizenship means, and by a literary and artistic culture that tells us that we are in everything duty-bound to see the other as on equal terms with the self. Being face-to-face with strangers is at the root of our political freedom. That being the case, who really has legitimate grounds for being offended when someone turns his back or covers her face in the public square, thus directly challenging a basic tenet of our society? Our second note is about Herbert London. As we were going to press, we received the sad news that our friend Herbert I. London, the prolific conservative writer, former head of the Hudson Institute, and founder and president of the London Center for Policy Research, had died, age 79. Herb's defining passions were education. He founded and presided over New York University's Gallatin School, which was once a serious great books program, and the integrity of Western civilization, represented by two pinnacles, the United States and Israel. Naturally athletic and standing six foot five, Herb enjoyed a stellar basketball career in high school and college, and he was drafted into the National Basketball League. Had he not suffered an injury, he might well have gone on to a long professional career in the sport. New York, and indeed the National Conservative Movement, would have been much the poorer for the loss. But we know that Herb's genius for friendship and bringing people together would nevertheless have made him a tonic presence in many lives. Requiescat in pace.